Hey guys, Brian Jodis here with a quick favor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our show, rate and review it, and always share it with your friends. It helps us pick up the six around here, and we are so thankful for you for that. We're also thankful for our friends at OmniSend. OmniSend is an e-commerce marketing service, and they're on a mission to make e-commerce accessible to everyone. That means they're making it easier for small and medium-sized businesses to get new customers and start making sales right off the bat. We use OmniSend here at Pick Up the Six. Their marketing automation tools take care of those time-consuming and repetitive tasks. I love their platform. It's super intuitive with great email templates. It's got drag and drop features for building emails. You don't have to be a web coder to use OmniSend. We use it for our newsletter. Super simple. We love it. It's so easy to use and it looks really good. It, it delivers a real punch. Anyone with a great idea, an interesting product, and some business sense can now compete with the big guys. Are you ready to start increasing your sales but not your workload? Visit Omnisend.com today and learn more. Thank you so much, Omnisend, for partnering up with Pick Up the Six. On October 12, 2000, the USS Cole, while refueling in the port of Aden, Yemen, was attacked. Some might say a precursor to 9-11. Men and women in the uniform of the United States Navy lost their lives. The commander of the ship on that fateful day was Kirk Lippold. Less than a year removed, America was attacked again. And he has an incredibly remarkable story about where he was on that day. This is Pick Up the Six Podcast. Commander Lippold, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brian. Great to be back on again. It is uh, quite a full circle here as we sit in this week uh, and we take time with intentionality to remember the fateful day that happened to our nation and many others around the globe on September the 11th, 2001. Your episode one, certain to get you have you back, is, uh, is incredible. Uh, and we're grateful that you would take a few minutes and, and jump in the seat again to share a little bit about that and to thank you. Uh, you really helped us kick off what's been an amazing few months of storytelling here. And we've got to meet some incredible people along the way. The most recent before this episode, Major General Tom Mulliken. Oh, man, incredible stories that he shared about adversity in his early life and just the amazing things he's done. So thanks for helping us kick it all off back in February. Absolutely. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope your listeners enjoyed it as well. It was just, it was thrilling to be number one out of the gate uh, with you guys in, uh, you know, as we're sitting here in this week prior to 9-11, I think that all of us, it's its hard to believe, Brian, that it's been 20 years. Yeah. For many, it has dragged by, especially those who have lost loved ones in the 9-11 attacks and in the follow-on conflicts that occurred as a result of that uh, attack on our nation, but also the families, many today, who have wounded that they're caring for and looking out for and making sure that they have a good life and that our nation is still providing for those who made that sacrifice to keep us free uh, before what we see unraveling in Afghanistan now. So, yeah, you, the juxtaposition of all of it, you're right. You know, look, it's the 20-year anniversary, so it's going to be a bit more emotional because of just the weight of what comes with that amount of time. But then coupled with the fact of just what we've seen unravel in front of all of our eyes over the last month, really over the last two, three weeks, 
in this uh, this exit from Afghanistan, I think it does just add to it. Maybe just some brief thoughts. We don't have to get too deep into it. We've talked about it quite a bit on this show over the last few weeks, and we don't need to get a ton of analysis from you as it relates to what that situation has played like. But but do you think it adds a little bit to it this year, the 20 year anniversary plus just witnessing what we've seen happen over the last few weeks in Afghanistan? Uh, I do. And I, I would say that it casts a shadow over how our nation is going to perceive and what's going on, what's going to go on in the future. Uh, I would commend all your listeners out there to, if you know a veteran, whether they serve time over in Afghanistan, Iraq, or anywhere around the world, because of the difficulty that many of us have experienced watching the events unfold in Afghanistan as we were trying to get our fellow citizens and the special immigrant visa holders and their families out, just take time and you don't need to get into the politics, but just ask them, how are you doing? Hmm. Are you okay? feeling all right and maybe just give them that that opportunity to let them vent a little bit let them talk about it a little bit let them get that off their chest because i think many people are bearing a burden and a frustration from these 20 years of giving to the nation in so many ways that they don't know how to express it and they don't they don't want to necessarily be angry they don't want to be frustrated but they want to just have someone that they can talk to. So I just commend your listeners. Mm. Hey, take a few minutes and just ask those veterans out there. How are you doing? Are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? You want to talk about it? Or do you just want me to let sleeping dogs lie and let's keep marching forward as a nation? Mm. Great point. Thanks for the perspective on that. And I know our folks will take that to heart and spring into action. September the 12th, or excuse me, October the 12th, 2000, your life changed uh, in a big way in the lives of many uh, in our United States Navy and around the world, really. And again, we take time to honor the 17 sailors that were killed on that day. 11 months later, we have that fateful day in our nation's history. So take me back into it. Well, uh, before September 11th, when I came off of USS Cole and the investigation had completed, I attended the Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk, got orders to the uh, Joint Staff at the Pentagon, working on what's called the J-5, which is the Strategy and Policy Directorate to give political military advice to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who then advises what we call the National Command Authority, the President and the Secretary of Defense, on what are the best strategic decisions and actions to take to safeguard our nation. So I arrived at that office at the end of July in 2001, uh, immediately went to work. The office I was in just happened to be the only office that was global in nature for strategy and policy. The rest of them were broken up into regional. And I was working with United Nations material. I was working on treaties, things of that nature. And uh, I got a call from a former commanding officer. I had been the executive officer on USS Shiloh. And my commanding officer at that time, a guy named John Russack, had come back to Washington following his successful command tour, had retired out of the Navy. But he had gone to work up at the uh, Central Intelligence Agency just upriver here from the Pentagon. And he said, hey, my boss, who is a legend at the CIA, a guy named Charlie Allen, he'd really like to have you come up so that we can kind of share with you very quietly what we here at the agency knew about bin Laden before, during, and after the attack on your ship. Can you, can you take a look and see if any, any, any periods might work? 
So I kind of, we went back and forth on a few dates. I checked with my boss there at the joint staff, a great Air Force colonel that I was working for, and uh, eventually decided on a date, hopped in the car, drove up, was driving up the uh, George Washington Parkway. I uh, pulled into the front of the CIA, talked to the nice pretty camera up front. The gate goes down. I drive up. I talk to the nice guy with the submachine gun. Another gate goes down and he gives me a parking pass to the old headquarters building out uh, on the backside of the campus. So I go in, I park there, a beautiful shaded lot, walk in the front doors. And, and Brian, it, it was the movie set. I mean, it was unbelievable. You walk in and there's this huge, like 16 or 20 foot granite seal embedded into the floor at the CIA of the CIA crest. To my left is one gold star in the wall for the people who gave their lives in the precursor organization to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services or OSS. And then to my right, you could see row after row after row of gold stars of those agency members who gave their lives in the service of our nation. Mm -hmm. And when you walk over and look in the book, it's broken down by year. And for the pages that were open that day, many were named, some were not, and they never will be known, but their sacrifice will never free, be forgotten. And their gold star is on that wall. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, John comes down and he picks me up and it's about uh, uh, 6.30 that morning, we go up to his office, grab a cup of coffee, and at 7 o'clock, we walked into Charlie Allen's office, and literally, it was an hour and a half. Um, one of the agents that had been on USS Cole with me uh, had actually gone to work for the CIA. He came in. He was running their science and technology branch at that time, so he sat in. And they walked me through everything they knew about bin Laden. Now, obviously, it, they had had to kind of bring down the intelligence level because I had not passed the strict and you know high standards of the CIA to get access to all the material. And quite frankly, I probably didn't have that critical need to know at mm -hmm. that point. But at the end, it was about 830 in the morning. And uh, Mr. Allen looks at me and says, well, what do you think? I said, well, sir, I'm going to be honest with you first. Thank you very much for your time. I know how busy it is because I listen to John complain all the time about it. But the other thing is, America doesn't understand. I believe it is going to take a seminal event, probably in this country, where hundreds, if not thousands, die before Americans realize we're at war with this guy. And he looked at me and said, well, we're doing our best to make sure that doesn't happen. So at that point, we all shook hands, and then uh, John was going to take me out and show me some overhead imagery, satellite imagery, of a unique place at that time called Tarnak Farms, which is a major training camp for Al-Qaeda. And as we walked out of his office and headed down to go look at that imagery, 20 minutes after I said that, the first plane hit the North Tower. So... We are watching it on a couple TVs as we go by offices and we pause and we look. And my first thought was, well, when I drove up here this morning, it was an incredibly beautiful fall day, not a cloud in the sky, just crystal clear. And I'm thinking, how could some knucklehead sightseeing airplane on a tour of the Hudson River in downtown New York on a beautiful visual flight rule day or VFR day like this, run into a building. I mean, how could that happen? 
And so I'm just, you know, we, we all kind of sense that something may not be right, but we're not sure. And at that point, we went down to what was called the Counterterrorism Center, CTC. At that time, we were going in to meet a guy that was still undercover. His name was Kofor Black. And as we were standing outside of his office, John and I watched in horror as the rest of the nation did that morning. As the second plane banked and slammed in to the South Tower, we watched that fireball blow out the backside from the impact. And at that point, we knew we were a nation of war. Everything around us suddenly went into general quarters at the CIA. Uh, we dipped real in real quick, met uh, Mr. Black, came back out, and his uh, secretary out front there looked at us and said, Charlie wants you to back up in his office right now. So we immediately left, went back up to the sixth floor, walked into his office. When we walked in, I mean, it was a hurricane. People were running in and out. He shoes everyone out, walks up, literally puts his arm around me and says, I cannot believe what you said this morning. And I said, well, sir, I guess I may have known about that this moment might come for the last 11 months, but we're both going to have a very busy day ahead of us. I need to get down back down to the Pentagon because I'm sure we've got a lot of work to do. So John's escorting me out of the building. We heard that uh, Director Tennant was, uh, had been at a breakfast meeting downtown giving a short speech. He was on his way back in. I hopped in my car. As I was leaving the agency grounds, Tennant and his entourage were coming back in with flashing lights and everything else. From there, I dumped on the George Washington Parkway headed south. And I'll be honest with you, Brian, that's when it hit me because I looked at it and said, I was entrusted with the lives of my sailors and 17 had been killed by this guy. Now we're looking at my nation being under attack. And I was thinking to myself, what could I have said? What could I have done? I bear responsibility for allowing this to happen. Now, I know that that probably in many ways may not make sense to your listeners, but when when I swore that oath, like every single one of these young women, men and women who swear that oath to support and defend our nation, that's something that you take near and dear on your heart. And the longer you serve, the more you hold it close to who you are. And as I'm driving down the parkway, I'm literally a mess. I'm in tears. I called my significant other at the time and uh, was expressing my frustration of what was happening. And as you come down toward the Pentagon, you kind of reach this split where you either dump south on the George Washington Parkway or you go to the right and loop into South Parking at the Pentagon and there's a stone bridge. And right before I got there, she says, oh my gosh, Jim Miklaszewski, who was with NBC News, just said the Pentagon's been attacked. And I drove under the arch, came out the other side. And while the Pentagon itself was still obscured by a tree line, I could see the top of the black cloud as it was continuing to rise up above the Pentagon. I didn't go toward the Pentagon. At that time, I veered left, went down the parkway and hopped on 395, which is the main artery coming out of Washington, D.C., headed south. And I drove up to an area called Boundary Channel Drive. I parked my car. A few seconds later, Arlington police showed up and told me you have to get out of here. And I said, well, I know that's what you say, but I work in there. This is who I am. This is what I've been through. This is what I need to do to help. And he's like, no problem. <laughs> 
right. Get after it. <laughs> exactly. Now I understand why you parked here and you want to give, give back a little bit. So literally we would be, as people were evacuating out of the Pentagon at that time, which you could see the burning flames, even from that side, mm. which is probably a quarter mile to the other side of the building. You could see the black smoke, you could see the burning jet fuel. We would stop Metro buses leaving Washington and we would just load it up with people that needed to go south. And we just told them, drive south. And if someone rings the bell, pull over, stop, let them out. They'll walk back into their neighborhood. But let's get as many people on board and get them out of the city. And at that point, we didn't know how many other attacks were going to occur. Obviously, mm -hmm. we had had the two towers up in New York get hit. We had had the Pentagon now get hit. There were rumors that a fourth one was inbound. We didn't know if it was aiming you know, to, for the Capitol, for the White House, somewhere downtown. Then we had rumors of a car bomb may have gone off near the State Department. People were coming out of there, you know, and as a as kind of a funny aside, um, as I'm watching all these men walk out of downtown Washington, I'm thinking this were a, this is where it pays off to buy a good set of shoes because you never know when you're going to have to walk. And if you've got a cheap shed, a set of shoes on, Man, there you're going to be hurting and bleeding by the end of the day when you're walking five miles mm -hmm. to get back home mm -hmm. at that point. But as I'm sitting there and getting people, the other thing that was had occurred is attached to the Pentagon at that time was the Child Development Center, where a lot of families could drop off their children and then go to assignments both at the Pentagon downtown and in other military installations in the area. Well, panicked parents coming out of D.C. were driving up, and of course, we had blocked off. Boundary Channel Drive, which gave access to that child development facility, and we'd stop them. And my number one job was to just walk up to those cars, roll down the window and say, okay, all the kids are safe. They've all been evacuated out. They're across the street in Lyndon Johnson Park. You're not allowed to go down there unless I know that you're calm enough to drive down this road with people all over the place because we don't need any more casualties by a parent not paying attention and taking someone out in a hit. So once the parents were good with that, they immediately calmed down because they knew their kids were safe. They just needed to go pick them up now. And that's how we'd allow people in. But the other thing that happened as I'm standing there is several times these black suburbans with flashing lights would go flying by and they were all going to the staging area just off of the uh, uh, George Washington uh, Boulevard, which ran next to the Pentagon. A lot of George things named George Washington mm -hmm. right in that mm -hmm. area. And two times as I'm standing there, these black Suburbans with these lights going and sirens all of a sudden slammed on their brakes. And it was like, and they'd back up. The windows had come down. And these guys would look at me saying, what are you doing here? I mean, haven't you had enough of this stuff? Good grief. You need to get away from all this stuff. It was FBI agents responding from headquarters in downtown Washington that were coming to find out if they could do anything at the Pentagon attack. And, and they see Kirk Lippold standing out there. Yeah. And those were guys that had been with me on USS Cole 11 months earlier in Aden, Yemen. A absolutely wow. stunning. And they're like, can't you get away from this stuff? And I'm like, hey, you don't understand. You need to stick close. They keep missing. So at that point in time, it's kind of like, you know, I talked, I'd say, OK, go up to this exit. Here's how you loop down command headquarters being set up in the north parking lot. Here's where the emergency van's been set up. Here's where the communications are. This is where you can go check in. 
So, you know, they were like, great, because they weren't exactly sure, because the, the Pentagon has so many little roads leading in and out of it. I mean, it's, it's literally on the winds. It's referred to as the drunk trap, mm-hmm. because anyone that decides to wander in there, chances are, if you've had anything to drink, you're not up. coming out. Yeah, you're not, you're coming, not out. coming. You're not coming out. You're unless you want bracelets on the back. Let me ask so, you something. Let me ask you something. Sure. Let me take, take a look. And that's there's so much in there to unpack and just so many moments that add up when we talked before and you talk about when the ship is attacked and that explosion happens and you reach in and you grab your nine millimeter and you walk out to face whatever's going to be in front of you as you're driving up to the Pentagon. And I know you have a lot of thoughts running through your head. Are you flashing back into that moment thinking about, I've got to run back into this thing again. Cause, cause your job, this isn't your job to be out there doing any of this, right? Like you could have driven home. I, I could have, but, I can't explain, but I knew I had to go in. I knew I had to do something. I knew I needed to be proactive in engaging. And going into the building, I knew was probably not going to be an option because we didn't know the extent of the damage. We didn't know how far the fire was going to burn. I was fortunate in that my office was literally 180 degrees out. It was on the opposite side of the building from where the plane had come across the hill and it impacted uh, right by the helicopter pad and then bounced up slightly before slamming into the building itself. So, you know, I knew that again, I think it was like the twin towers that morning. I'm thinking you've literally taken out almost a full wedge of the Pentagon. We're probably going to have a couple thousand dead here Mm. as well as 10,000 dead out of the twin towers that morning. The other The other thing that kind of happened also, Brian, is that as time went on that morning, and of course, we can loop back to this, we heard on the radio that we had playing, the Twin Towers have collapsed. And I could not visualize that. I I, I mean, to me, it was kind of like, okay, I guess the top, you know, and it just, they kind of just- It's almost surreal. Yeah, they they just kind of, the top would just went- chunk, chunk, you know, maybe drop down a couple floors and they're going to have to, okay, we're going to have to, you know, tear down at the the top, you know, 10, 20 stories of the World Trade Center and then we'll build it back up. No big deal. It wasn't until I got home that night at 530, tired and sunburned, that I looked at TV, which, of course, it was playing over and over and over again. The the horror of watching Mm the tower suddenly disappearing into the cloud and seeing that antenna slowly going down and then disappearing. And it was poof. But that, that morning, Brian, uh, going home was not an option. Heading toward the danger and what had happened, I had to do because that's what we're paid to do. Lean in with me here. I'm going to read part uh, from your book, Front Burner. It says, could I have pressed harder for actions that might have prevented the appalling disaster of the day that we had just lived through? I did not know, but I did know that now our country would finally be ready to respond. We would take action at last to avenge these terrorist attacks and prevent a recurrence. My nation was at war. And at that moment, my resolve to help defend it was stronger than ever. You knew without a doubt it was the same guys. Absolutely. 
I mean, I, and it may have come out just in conversation, but it was a hallmark of bin Laden to have done something like this. The fact that he had attacked us and unfortunately there was no response by two presidents and two administrations. President Clinton kept raising the bar for responding against bin Laden. President Bush took the attitude of we're forward looking, not backward acting. And now 11 months later, my nation is paying the price for not reacting to a terrorist attack that had killed Americans. Let's do this because I want to talk about the American exceptionalism that in the face of this incredible adversity, arguably the greatest to ever hit our country, uh, what you saw then happen, right? So, so this terrible thing happens to us and it will live with us for the remainder of American history, this seminal moment, as you called it. But what you did see that day as those towers went down, where heroes run in, heroes run to the Pentagon, heroes run to Shanksville to save those people. Tell me a little bit about the American spirit that you saw engaged from that day moving forward in those moments after this terrible attack. In those moments afterward, as people were evacuating, I was asking him, are you okay? Is there anything you need? And they were the ones that would give me the little descriptions and snippets of what they had seen of people going into the smoke-filled hallways to try and rescue and bring people out. Some of the people that had brought out people that had been burned by the explosion of the jet fuel and the burning in the building and how they had rescued them and helped them get them into ambulances. All those things began to play out. And, you know, over time, I've gotten very close with many of the agents who were with me on coal, who were with me you know, that saw me that morning. One of them in particular is a guy named Tom O'Connor. Uh, he and his wife, Jean, are both agents. He actually responded. To the, he was one of the three guys in the galley area that did the recoveries. Tom would respond to the attack on USS Cole. Three years ago, he retired with his wife on 9-11 because it was such a poignant part of his career up to that point. And he would also become the president of the FBI Agents Association, which even today is a huge benefactor for any agent killed in the line of duty. They take care of the family, they take care of the education, but they also looked after all those people that years later would die from the effects of working at the Pentagon, at Ground Zero and 9-11 that all the diseases that came out a result, they now take care of any of the agents and their families that have died as a result of working to the, of going in toward that danger and seeing what they could do. So, you know, just knowing that there were other people contributing and doing things gave me heart and you could feel the resolve of our nation building and hardening that finally, finally, we as a nation recognized the dangers of terrorism and that if you do not go after those who injure or kill Americans, the price can be costly. I'd encourage you guys, if you have not listened to episode one, to go back and, and listen to Commander Lippold's full uh, recount of the fateful day they had in Yemen. And the reaction to years later, when we finally got Osama bin Laden and what that moment was like for him, he, he tells that story and, and it's well worth that for, for some element of 
of closure, some element. We know that there never can fully be that, but some element of it. Commander, final thoughts. I want to I want to ask you this before we go. It's been it's been a wild couple of weeks coming off of an incredible year and a half where the world is hit by a global pandemic. And on our own streets in America, we see division and turmoil. Uh, all of last summer, we saw it nonstop. Um, it, it feels like so much is mounting against us. And it feels like over the last three weeks, you're like, where's that American spirit? And, and I know you're optimistic about what it can be in the future, but also a bit bullish about what it takes for us to to continue to be that power. So maybe just some thoughts as to where we're at in the globe right now and, and what we need to do to be the America that ran into action after Pearl Harbor, to be the America that American flags still wave in French villages because of the action we took, and to be the America that stormed into those buildings on 9-11. What are your thoughts? I think, Brian, that what Americans have to realize is that we are, and still, we've been for years, the greatest nation in the world. Part of that is because there was a vision back in the 1776 timeframe, who saw what our country could become, who crafted a unique document called our constitution. You know, you have to remember that when these young men and women, and even our elected representatives swear an oath, they don't swear an oath to defend the nation. Mm -hmm. They don't swear an oath to defend Americans. They swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I think a lot, a lot of people lately don't feel like we as a nation are making the progress that we need on a host of issues. And I would tend to disagree because as a nation, we have an incredible capacity to recognize our own shortfalls. And yes, Sometimes it takes a little longer than we'd like to fix those things, whether it's in race or sex, gender, any of those things, religion. But we eventually do get it right and we fix it and we are stronger because of it. And it is that fact alone that makes us that great nation, that we don't become insular that we don't become so hardened in our views that we cannot accept other viewpoints. What you have to remember is, look, I need to be tolerant. I need to be respectful. I may not necessarily accept your point of view for whatever reason, but the fact that we can tolerate each other and get along, that's what matters. This is our country. This is our nation. No one makes you stay here. And if you are so ashamed and don't like it, hey, one of the great things about our country, you have the option to leave. Many nations, you can't do that. You're not allowed to leave. We're seeing it play out right out. now across the globe. Yeah, We're seeing you, it play out you, right now. You speak out against some countries around the world, you're jailed or you just flat disappear. And your families never see you again. That does not happen in our country. So I think that it's the ability of our nation to be able to see, look in the mirror occasionally and realize, you know what? We've got some pretty serious faults that we need to address and take care of. And every time we do that, yeah, it's a tough look. 
it's hard. Not everyone likes it. It makes them uncomfortable. You have those uncomfortable conversations. But guess what? It is because we can have those conversations that we do become better over time and our nation has continued to improve and still will. And, and I think the, the capacity of the American people overall can do that. Those who don't believe they can, you've get essentially given up. Please step aside. Just because you Twitter has you having a Twitter account doesn't mean that I care about what your voice says because you never served, you don't have relevance, and a mouth does not give you carte blanche to guide the future of my nation. I want you to be able to contribute in ways that make a positive difference for our country, not tear it down to try and make yourself feel better about the future you feel you want or you're deserving of or you think we should go because it's those who serve and give back, whether it's first responders, police officers, military personnel, those are the ones who give of themselves to make for better communities, for better cities, states, and for a better nation. So before you complain, what have you done to make us a better nation? other than shoot your mouth off, because I really don't care. Until you do something positive for my nation, you are an irrelevant voice. I want you to do what you need to do to give back before you take. Powerful, my friend. I'm glad you were willing to go there and give a little perspective to it. That day, September the 11th, 2001, obviously one that uh, we all hold close to us this week as we take time to reflect on those incredible moments to hear your story about where you were on that day as fate would have it man, 11 months removed uh, from October the 12th, 2000 to be standing in the halls of the CIA to have said to Charles Allen, I think it's going to take a seminal moment, likely on American soil for us to finally wake up to this. And then it happens. You can't script it, Commander, that's for sure. Uh, but no. it's reality. Yeah, it, it is, Brian. I mean, you never know why the hand of providence or God guides you the way he does, puts you where you are at certain points in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, despite the tragedy of USS Cole, despite the tragedy of 9-11, the life I've been given to lead to try and give back and help others to try and make our nation better is one of the greatest blessings and gifts that I could ever ask for. And I will always try to find a way to make sure that I will give probably till the day I go out the door feet first, because when I swore that oath, just because I retired doesn't mean that oath isn't part of the fabric of who I am today. And I'm very proud that I still get these opportunities like your show right now to be able to talk to your listeners and say, we have been and still are and will remain the greatest nation in the world, but it's going to be because of you and your wanting to give to the future of our nation. He's Commander Kirk Lippold, had commanded the USS Cole, reflects on those moments of where he was on 9-11. Sir, thanks so much for joining us and sharing all that with our listeners. Thank you, Brian. An absolute pleasure and truly, truly an honor. Commander Kirk Lippel, I'm Brian Jodas, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.